Welcome to the Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. I'm Carson Messersmith. Hey, we're here to look at the Nebraska Supreme Court cases and Nebraska Court of Appeals cases. This is going to be for the Court of Appeals from uh, December 13th, 2022, and the Nebraska Supreme Court cases from uh, December 16th, 2022. Am I wrong on those? No, I think I think we got that right this time. <laughs> Ooh, That's okay. good. Ooh, okay. Uh, another thing I wanted to just touch on real quick. Um, we're we're going over these cases very, you know, like looking at them from a, a, a 747 down to an anthill, right? Now, now, when they are, there's so much work that goes into these things, right? There's so much back and forth. There's so much drama. There's, these are people's lives. I don't think, I, I don't want to forget that by kind of glossing over stuff because we're solely focused on the legal value of this, right? Yep, 100%. Okay. I'm glad we agree on that. We agree, yeah. That's and there's good. yeah, there's a ton of work that goes into these appeals. We've both done appeals. We know what it exactly. takes to write these. Oh, We're not man. trying to diminish any of the work that goes into even the smallest or the biggest appeal. I spent so much time writing appeals and, and briefs, and I'd get up, and, you know, I have kids. So I'd get up at, like, 4 o'clock on a Saturday, and I'd go into the office, and I'd start cranking out the appeal because nobody's bothering you. And I try and be done, uh, at least with some of it, before the kids woke up that Saturday. And um, you put in all those work, <laughs> all those hours, and lack of sleep and getting things done, and then, you know, nothing. And <laughs> it's a little, uh, you know, and then to have uh, at least me uh, come in here and say, bip, bip, affirmed, you know. I mean, the, the, I, I don't mean it to be, you know, insulting at all. Yeah, no, we understand they're your babies. We, we're not trying to. Yeah. Exactly. We know what an ugly baby. That was. <laughs> we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to talk about that no, one. No, there's nothing no, nothing there. Uh, but we uh, today we're going to start with uh, some uh, Court of Appeals decisions from the December 13th slate that went down. And I think you have the first one, Carson. I believe so. So the first opinion that we have is Wit v. Wit. Uh, this was a divorce case coming out of Sarpy County. Uh in my opinion, as someone who doesn't practice family law, it seemed pretty straightforward. So I guess take that for what, yeah, <laughs> whatever it's worth. Yeah. Um, I do think that there was kind of an interesting discussion at the end um, where one party, I believe the husband, wanted to have uh, his wife held in contempt for uh, violation of a temporary order that the uh, district court judge had put in place uh, regarding a couple of uh, financial interests of the parties. And uh, they have a discussion there as to what is willful and what is willfully violating uh, one of those temporary orders. And so I thought that discussion uh, was kind of interesting on that. All right. And ultimately affirmed? Ultimately affirmed. Okay. Um, similarly, in, in the next case, uh, Leslie v. Leslie, um, this is out of Sarpy County. It was a pro se, pro se appellants and uh, Appley. And w it was also about contempt. And basically they had a decree that said, hey, um, you know, a party, go sell the house. And um, I'm, I'm, you need to refinance the house. And if you can't refinance the house, you got to sell it. And you got to give a bunch of property back to, I think it was your husband. You got to give your bunch of property back to your husband. And then they said uh, the decree is a, uh, judgment. And once a decree uh, for dissolution becomes final, its meaning is determined as a matter of law from the four corners of the decree itself, which means when you're drafting those decrees, when you're uh, putting those together for the court to consider ordering those, you got to be explicit. 
um, you got to say exactly what you want um, ordered or have that be somewhere in some of the settlement documents because um, they're not looking out of those kind of documents if it's not attached or anything else with that decree. So I think that's important. And this, this leave it to the pro se person because what the pro se person did here, um, they said, hey, judge, you're, you're going to threaten me with jail, right? Because this is contempt. Give me a lawyer. Appoint, appoint counsel for me. And I mean, they got a point. Got you're a po- threatened with jail. Yeah, I mean, if you're threatened with jail, I there's a big, does the statutory right attach? I I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, so there. That's for another day. But for here, they brought that up, and uh, they do not consider that a time in his error uh, because it was not adequately argued. Um, but you know, maybe for future, that's something kind of interesting. I think that eventually somebody's going to have to decide uh, whether if in order to hold somebody in contempt, whether you got to give them a lawyer or not, at least with the threat of jail, I think. Yeah, I uh, well, and yeah, I mean, it's a constitutional issue probably for another day. Yeah, but, you yeah, got the direct like contempt, it, yeah. and then you got, you know, the civil contempt, which is, so, and they, they do a big discussion about that is, you know, we're not trying to put you in contempt. It's not direct contempt where I'm punishing you with jail. It's I'm saying you got to do this. You have the keys to your own jail cell. I think that's probably how they get out of court-appointed counsel, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, that's, that's what they did here, and uh, it was actually for a pro se everything fairly interesting. There you go. Pro se's, unique ideas. Unique ideas. The next opinion we had uh, is State v. Cornell. Uh, this was uh, a case coming out of Buffalo County with a another pro se litigant uh, regarding a uh, essentially post-conviction relief. Uh, he was denied uh, in form of pauperous status. Um, essentially, the the court, the district court, found that um, the claims were wholly without merit uh, that he was trying to pursue uh, for post conviction relief. Uh, that was affirmed in a pretty brief opinion, um, and they sent that on its way. There you go. Um, the next case we had was uh, Klein v. Hartman, a Hall County case. This is another domestic appeal, um, custody awarded joint legal custody and then um, there was a physical custody award as well and they uh, ended up affirming the um, there was an appellant who obviously appealed you know that's how that works and then the um, there wasn't any sort of briefing or anything done by the appellee so I I think that uh, you know somebody uh, appealed the final custody order here where I think this is important the or at least interesting, is there's a big discussion here. Uh, the, the child uh, that was at least one of the children, if not the only one, uh, subject to these uh, decisions regarding best interest and everything else was interviewed by the court. And it was in, uh, the child was interviewed by the court um, outside the presence of legal counsel and the, and the, and the parents. And uh, the, the mother, I believe, objected to that. And they said that uh, Nebraska has not adopted a rule on this particular issue as far as, you know, the parameters for child uh, testifying and the ability to counteract that. And they declined to do so now because the uh, mother there failed to request that at the trial court and informer of the substance of the interview and be given an opportunity to respond. So that would be something for another day. I mean, if you have that going on and, and you think it's an issue that you want to raise, um, they're saying it's out there. Um, you know, if you if you raise it correctly in front of us, we'll take a look at it. But they didn't do it to, uh, under this uh, circumstance. So that it was ultimately affirmed, and uh, that's pretty much all there is on that one. 
Uh, next, we come to State v. Batista, uh, which kind of deals with uh, similar issues to what we, again, just addressed there. Uh, the two assignments of error that uh, Batista was alleging was excessive sentence, uh, which was affirmed because it was within uh, statutory guidelines. And then, um, essentially, he was saying that uh, his attorney... Uh, his trial counsel had uh, misadvised him of um, the DNA transfer defense. Uh, the interesting part of this opinion uh, that the court notes, and as we find here uh, that is important with appellate work, is that uh, you know there was nothing in the record to show uh, the ineffective assistance of counsel claims uh, that Mr. Bautista was alleging because of the fact that that none of that is in the record. So none of the advice that trial counsel was giving Mr. Bautista as to what defenses existed, uh, how they should uh, strategize for trial, any of the information or reasons that they deposed victims or didn't depose certain victims, uh, reasons that they tried to keep certain evidence out or let certain evidence in, none of that's in the appellate record. So when it comes to an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, it's really difficult to address something like that because it's not in the record. And as we hear oftentimes from appellate courts, if it's not in the record, they can't address it. It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. If it doesn't exist. So they need to they need to have that record because they can't look at uh, everybody else's opinions on things or the briefs and everything that you try and sneak in uh, things that aren't in the record. If it's not in the record, they're not going to look at it. Um, so that would be uh, the end of the Court of Appeals decisions for December thirteenth. And now we have uh, Supreme Court decisions for December sixteenth. Supreme Court decisions, yes. And so starting out, uh, 132 Ventures versus Active Spine Physical Therapy. Uh, this was a uh, case out of Omaha. Um, essentially, uh, the, the little bit of background, uh, 132 Ventures had bought a uh, property that uh, was owned and then was rented to uh, Active Spine um, before 132 Adventures was uh, ever a part of this case. Uh, long story short, uh, the original owner of that property that was leasing to Active Spine uh, was not making payments. There's a foreclosure action. 132 Ventures acquires the property uh, through uh, this foreclosure action. And then uh, Active Spine um, does not start paying 132 Ventures uh, as they believed. Uh, they should have been paid because they acquired the property through uh, this foreclosure. 132 uh, Ventures then uh, sues for forcible entry and detainer, breach of contract, breach of uh, guarantee and unjust enrichment. Uh, the district court here um, granted the forcible entry and detainer, essentially said, Active Spine, you're not paying this, uh, you can't be here, uh, grants the restitution of premises and then awards damages after a bench trial. Um, Active Spine appeals uh, primarily on the denial of the jury. Um, they were saying here this shouldn't have been a bench trial, this should be a jury trial, and then the calculation of damages. Uh, the district court said that the parties had agreed to a uh, bench trial, that the matter had been set for a bench trial, and therefore uh, they had waived um, this right to a jury trial. The interesting piece here is that if there was any agreement to have a bench trial, it was done off the record. Uh, even though all parties were present, it was done off the record. Um, and essentially the district court here says that, um, that uh, Spine had... Um, had waived their right to a jury that this needed to go forward uh, with a bench trial. Um, Active Spine continued to object on this even at trial, saying that this should have been set 
for a uh, jury trial. We get this award um, at the conclusion of the bench trial. Um, they appeal, and then this is actually reversed. And the interesting, um, reversed and remanded, uh, the interesting point here uh, that the Supreme Court goes into is that uh, there was a statutory right to a jury trial on the issue of the breach of contract. For the forcible entry and detainer, it looks like there isn't um, a jury uh, or a right to a jury. Again, go look at this opinion if you really want to see that in-depth discussion. But uh, the Supreme Court says, yes, we should have had a uh, jury trial or a right to jury trial on the contract issues, and that that can only be waived in three very um, explicit um, ways. One is with the consent of the party that is appearing. Uh, two is by written consent by the person or their attorney filed with the clerk. And then three is by oral consent in open court entered upon the record. So that had to be entered upon the record. So even though they said that that discussion happened, it happened off the record and with an explicit right, uh, like a right for uh, a jury. The Supreme Court says here, you can only waive that by the other two manners or with that oral consent in open court on the record. Um, and so they reversed that and uh, remanded that for a jury trial on the contract and damage issues. Um, so again, very I think a very valuable opinion and something that uh, is, is useful to look at for lots of different areas of the law. Oh, I agree 100%. I guess what, what's running on my mind is, did the judge make a finding on the contract issues? You know, I mean, if, if, cause they had the trial, right? So the judge made a finding. So do those get vacated and then you just do whatever the jury says on the way back? I mean, that's what it seems like. So the you vacate it because the damage issues then should have been sent to a jury. So now the the damage award is award is vacated, and that'll be up for a jury to decide as far as the because again, and they did affirm the uh, forcible entry and detainer, right? And so they said yes, you shouldn't have been able to be on this property, you weren't paying for it. But as far as the niche issue of the contract and then the damages portion, they're saying you have a right to a jury trial, so we're sending this back and we're going to let a jury decide. And if you're going to waive your right to a jury, you got to do something on the record or something in a pleading or something. Or if you want someone to waive it or yeah, or exactly. Or if you're a judge and you are taking a waiver, you know, you need to be aware of that, the part with the consent or by written consent, or then again, doing it in open court on the record, not off the record. Yeah. So no emails that say, Hey, we don't want a jury. That's not what it looks. Yeah, no, no emails, no no discussions in the jury room. No, no tweets. No, no, no tweets. No Instagram. No memes. No note passing. Okay. Uh, if no I no smoke TikTok, signals. TikTok. Okay, I won't do TikTok. Um, okay. So, anything else on that? Nothing else on that's that. A, that's a good one. I think uh, I think civil practitioners who are involved with jury trials probably need to go and take a look at that because it's got a really good discussion of that. Um, the next case here is uh, interest of Elijah King. And uh, it's a juvenile delinquency case. Basically, what happened here is uh, deputies in um, Douglas County were going to serve this minor child's mother with a protection order and place her under arrest. And the uh, juvenile, the subject of, of this appeal, um, got in the way, uh, well, found to be getting in the way of that and was charged with obstruction of a police officer. And the question, I think, that was raised for the appeal is you know color of official authority when are when are, when is law enforcement you know acting in the law enforcement capacity to this the extent that a juvenile who's trying to protect his mother i mean i think that's what it comes down to a juvenile who's trying to protect his mother and gets in interferes with that somehow um what is 
the 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 standard for um, what the law enforcement officers need to be doing in order for the juvenile to be charged with obstruction of, of a police officer. So they get a little into the statutory interpretation piece. They go uh, enforcement of penal law, and penal law are those imposing punishments for an offense committed against the state. So that's not what they're doing here. It's not uh, part of the penal law. It's not part of the penal code that they're doing. But they do say that it's probably preservation of the peace. So they're probably preserving the peace because it means maintaining the tranquility enjoyed by members of the community where good order reigns. Man, isn't that above your bedpost? That is poetic. <laughs> it's it's nice. It's uh, tranquility enjoyed by members of the community where good order reigns. And so... Um, that that's what they were doing here, and then they go into the factors of uh, obstruction and whether he was obstructing because you know uh, he didn't actually stop the officers from serving his mother, um, but he did use or threaten to use violence, force, physical interference, or obstacle to intentionally obstruct, impair, or hinder the deputies, and so that's what because they were in hindered or uh, you know somewhat impaired then it was found that the evidence was sufficient to find that he uh, did in fact um, violate that statute and was adjudicated as a juvenile under the code so there's that i mean it seems like one of those cases where uh, it's tough factually and that i think we all empathize with a in this case, a child or at least a, a minor, yeah, you know, interfering on behalf of a parent, you know, even if they shouldn't have. And so that's what makes these tough cases. I, I think that's the reason juvenile court exists, right, is to say, you know, if this was a criminal matter, I think that's that that's more compelling. Right. But juvenile court, it's like, listen, if you were going to do this and you're an adult, this these are the. These are, this, this is what, what you could be subject to. Yeah, yep. Right now, I get it. You're you're a child and you're under these circumstances, so it's better that you learn it now rather than later on. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and it's a good discussion about obstruction, which is transferable to the criminal world too. I mean, you can take these juvenile delinquency cases where they just, uh, look at things and you can transfer it to other places too. So there. Are we good? There we go. We're good. Hey, I think we're done with this week, and we will see you next week. And... Um, once more, I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And uh, this has been Point Two Law Review, brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And uh, I think that's it till next week. Yeah, I think so. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. Yeah. See you, number four. Number four. Why, yeah, number four. Uh, wow. wow.